Beloved, our text for this evening is from 1 Peter 4, the first 11 verses. I'll not read them again as we'll be moving through those verses uh, throughout the message. And I'll also be drawing on Lord's Day 33, the teaching of uh, conversion, daily conversion, the uh, mortification of the old man and the renewal of the new man. Well, if you've ever been in an airport, a larger airport, you will know that in the terminal, there are moving walkways. So if you go to Detroit Metro, there are those moving walkways throughout the terminal. You get on the the walkway, you can either stand on the walkway or you can walk faster to get to your gate where your plane is waiting. But as you get to the end of that walkway, you'll hear a voice with a tinge of a foreign accent, so you pay attention, that says this, pay attention or caution, watch your step as you approach the end of the moving walkway. Caution, watch your step as you approach the end of the moving walkway. Watch how you walk as you approach the end. We could take the summary of that phrase, watch how you walk as you approach the end, and apply that to the Christian life. Watch how you walk as you approach the end. In light of communion, we could very well say the same thing. In light of what you've experienced here this morning in communion, sitting at the Lord's table, for those who are believers, you are called to watch how you walk. Having left the Lord's table, the Lord calls you to renewed obedience, to renewed zeal and pursuing holiness. The question after communion is this, how then shall we live in light of God's grace to us? In light of his feeding and nourishing and strengthening our souls, how then do we live in light of that? Watch how you walk. The Christian life is a walkway, isn't it? It's a walkway to heaven, a walkway to glory. As a person gets on the walkway, the voice that you hear in the airport at the end of the walkway is now at the very beginning. The Christian, the beginning of the Christian life is a call to watchfulness, to watch how you walk. That voice continues throughout the Christian life on that walkway. Watch how you walk. Watch how you walk. But as you approach the end, that voice grows louder. That's what the Apostle Peter is saying in 1 Peter 4, 7. But the end of all things is at hand. Be ye therefore sober. So the Christian life is a life of sobriety in light of the coming end of all things. A life that is walked in light of the coming judgment. A life that is walked in the midst of suffering and persecution. A life that is walked in service to others. In loving one another, we we already began to touch on that this morning at the table, how we are called to love one another in light of God's love to us. 
It is a life that is sustained not by our own strength and power, but by the power and the grace of God. And so in light of communion, as we reflect on that, we don't say, how can I live in my own power and strength? No. We look back at communion, we see how God has fed and nourished our souls, and we say, how can I now live out of that strength, that renewed sense of strength that God has given me? How can I live in a fresh way, in a, in a real way, out of the grace of God? The Christian life is a life that is walked for the glory of God. In short, we can summarize it this way. As the end of all things approaches, it matters how you walk as a Christian. As the end of all things approaches, it matters how you walk as a Christian. Holiness is needed in light of the end. That's what our theme is for this evening's message. Holiness needed in light of the end. In the first place, we see the foundational pattern of this holiness. See, in the Lord's mercy, He doesn't just set us off and help us or or let us figure out our own way. No, He sets down a pattern for us to follow so that we understand what the Christian life is about. The Apostle Peter wrote his epistle to suffering Christians. And those suffering Christians were called to a life of holiness. And as he writes to them, he shows them the significance of the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ for that life of holiness. He writes in verse 1, For as much then as Christ hath suffered for us in the flesh. It's an expression that takes us immediately to the cross. Christ hath suffered for us in the flesh. And so then we immediately understand that the the Christian life, the context of the Christian life, the pursuit of sanctification is one that takes place in the midst of suffering. Sanctification or conversion, as the Heidelberg Catechism puts it, is a cross-shaped life. The pursuit of holiness often happens within the context of suffering. And indeed, it's suffering that accelerates our holiness. It's suffering that accelerates our conformity to Christ. It is suffering that is used in the hands of our Heavenly Father to shape us into the image of His Son. We're following the pattern that Christ has set. Just as God used the suffering of the cross to perfect Christ, to fully mature Him, so God uses suffering in our lives as believers to mature us, to make us more like Christ. It's suffering that takes away all the rough edges of a Christian. It's suffering that exposes the sin in our lives. It's suffering that reveals our need of Christ 
again and again. And so the Christian life is a Christ is a cross-shaped life, patterned after Christ's own cross. Christ has suffered for us, Peter writes, for those who are believers. His suffering for us was vicarious. We, we saw that this morning. It was in the place of sinners. That's what vicarious means. It simply means in the place of. Christ suffered in the place of sinners. And that immediately gives hope in the pursuit of holiness. Because the sufferings of Christ provide the pattern as, the, as Christians for believers as they battle sin within the context of suffering. If we're honest, we would say suffering is hard. Suffering is not pleasant. We don't want to go through the hard things that God brings into our lives. And yet we we are brought to look at the cross again this, this evening, and we look at the cross and we say Christ suffered for us. We go back to what Peter's saying here, for as much then as Christ hath suffered for us in the flesh. If Christ did that for us, not only as the pattern, but providing the power for us, we are immediately encouraged. We ought to be encouraged. What Peter writes here is very similar to what Paul writes in his epistles. That we have been crucified with Christ. We are in union with Christ in His sufferings, in His death, in His resurrection. Reminding us that the cross is significant in the pursuit of holiness in different ways. It reminds us that we are dead to sin, first of all, because we have died with Christ on that cross. In union with Christ, we are now dead to sin. Sin no longer has dominion over us, Paul writes in Romans 6. The cross reminds us then that our own death Our ongoing death to sin takes place under the suffering and cross that is laid upon us. It doesn't mean we sign up for suffering. But suffering is part and parcel of the pursuit of holiness. Each person's cross, each person's suffering is different. And yet that suffering is the very context in which our sanctification takes place that God uses to conform believers to the image of His Son. As we look at the cross of Christ, it's in the light of that cross and its significance that we understand, we begin to understand more fully the enormity of our sin. It is our sin that has led to the very suffering of the Son of God on the cross. produces in us that sincere sorrow of heart for sin that we have provoked God by our sins, as question and answer 89 says of the catechism. And it encourages us more and more to hate and flee from sin. So the cross puts our suffering in perspective. The cross puts our sin in perspective. We see it for what it is, the ugliness of it, that it led to the suffering of Christ on the cross, and we we hate it and we flee from it. And so we're called to the pattern of the cross in the pursuit of holiness. We see the cross of Christ, and Peter says in verse 1, arm yourselves likewise with the same mind. 
Arm yourselves likewise with the same mind. So suffering is not only the context in which our sanctification takes place for those who are believers tonight, but we're also reminded that the pursuit of holiness is warfare. This is, this is army language. This is war language that Peter is using here. Arm yourselves likewise with the same mind. So sanctification is not child's play. We don't leave communion to go on the playground. We leave the communion table and we are immediately on the front lines of the war that we are waging against sin, against indwelling sin. We could say that we are waging war on the devil's playground. That's certainly true. But it's war nonetheless. It's hand-to-hand combat with sin and with the devil in our lives. In fact, Lord's Day 33 refers to it as mortification. That's an old word. Mortify means to die. Mortification means to put to death, to kill. Strong language, to be sure. A putting to death, a doing violence to the sin that clings to us. And so we need to be properly armed And it begins in the mind, doesn't it? It begins in the mind. And when the Scriptures speak of the mind, it speaks of of this totality of the human being within the internal aspect of who a person is. The mind and the heart are often taken to be the very same thing in the Scriptures. Fixing the mind, fixing the heart, the thinking and all that goes along with the thinking It's not merely psychological warfare. It is spiritual warfare. It is fixing the mind and fighting after the pattern of Christ. Arm yourselves with the same mind that Christ took as He undertook the cross and the suffering that was laid upon Him. Arm yourselves with the same mind. This is the cross that we are carrying after Christ, not to earn our salvation, but so that we might be Conform to the image of Christ. Peter writes, For he that hath suffered in the flesh hath ceased from sin. That language of union with Christ comes back here. If we are dead with Christ, we are dead to sin. And it's through our suffering that our sins are often exposed and mortified. Suffering after the pattern of Christ is the solution for putting sin to death. Think of all the things, believer, that you've experienced. Suffering, hard things, your responses, even to your children. When they misbehave and your responses to them, what does that show? When our responses are less than sanctified, it shows that we have room to grow, doesn't it? In our response to our employer, it shows us often that we are less sanctified than we actually think we are. And so we're called to mortify that sin that is revealed in the things that we experience in everyday life. 
But then suffering comes, hard things. Perhaps a sick child or you receive news from the doctor that you yourself are sick and close to death or the loss of a loved one, of a spouse or of a child. What does that reveal? It reveals the cracks, doesn't it? It reveals the holes in our holiness. It's what God uses to to bring us to dependence on Him, to say that we are not really sanctified, that we are more sinful than we actually realize, and we are less sanctified than we actually realize. And so as believers suffer, as we respond to the things of life, we The sin is exposed and ought to be confessed and put to death. That's what Peter refers to in verse 2, the purpose of the cross. That he no longer should live the rest of his time in the flesh to the lusts of men, but to the will of God. And so as we look at the cross, it exposes our sin, but it also reminds us That we are called to live in newness of life. Not to the will of man, but to the will of God. And so in union with Christ, a believer's identity is now in Christ. Dead to sin, alive unto God. We are now free to battle sin. Armed with the same mind and insight that suffering is the means of our sanctification in the hand of God. Whatever shape or form that suffering takes, and it's different for every child of God. But the main purpose is this, the transformation of heart and life. The transformation of the very purpose of your life. Peter is saying here, as you you look at Christ, who suffered on the cross, as you look at the cross this evening, what should the purpose of your life be? No longer living to the lusts of the flesh, but living to the will of God who has redeemed you. That is now the great purpose of your life. Paul writes of that will of God in 1 Thessalonians 4.3. He says this, for this is the will of God, even your sanctification. The will of God is your sanctification. This is what the cross, this is what communion calls us to this evening, to pursue holiness. This is what suffering, this is what the cross that God has laid upon each one of us seeks to achieve in our lives. And so this foundational pattern is set down for believers to follow the Christian life. It's a cross-shaped life. The Christian life is empowered by the very cross of Christ, by the work of Christ, by the person of Christ. For as much then as Christ hath suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with this same mind that he no longer should live the rest of his time in the flesh to the lusts of men, but to the will of God. That ought to be the pattern for every believer moving forward from this morning, moving forward from the communion table, pursuing a life of holiness. 
putting off the old man. Well, that raises the question, well, what do we put off? How do we live out of this foundational pattern? Well, Peter points out a contrast. He points out a contrast between the former time in which a believer lived and the time that a believer is living, living now. And he says the former pleasure is what you are called to put off. Here's the foundational pattern. And now in our second thought, here is the former pleasure that you are to put off. In verse 2, he refers to the rest of his time in the flesh, that phrase, the rest of his time in the flesh. And then in verse 3, the time past of our life. The contrast is between the former life in verse 3 with the new life that is now in Christ in verse 2. The new life is lived in the flesh. It's lived in the here and now, in the body, in this flesh and blood existence that we find ourselves in. Post-communion, we're not mysteriously transformed into some spiritual being that no longer has any struggle with sin at all. That's not scriptural teaching. But the pursuit of holiness, the life of sanctification within a life of suffering is in the here and now of, of a flesh and blood existence. We live this life in the body, the new life. But that new life is in contrast with the former life. That former life is described in vivid terms as fulfilling the will of the Gentiles, the godless, the heathen who lived without thought of God. Peter writes, For the time past of our life may suffice us to have wrought the will of the Gentiles when we walked in lasciviousness, in lusts, excess of wine, revelings, banquetings, and abominable idolatries. The former life is marked by sexual immorality, by revelings, by banquetings, by abominable idolatries, by partying, by gluttony, by all that is abominable and a stench in the nostrils of God. That is the former life, Peter says. And then he says this, for the time past of our life may suffice us to have walked in those things. What does that mean? Peter looks at that life and he says that the time spent was sufficient in pursuing all those things. It's enough. You no longer are called to pursue those things. In modern language, we might say you spent more than enough time pursuing those things in the former life. But now those things that you, are, you have pursued, you are called to reject. That time is finished. It ought to be in the past. Now, it doesn't mean that there is not any remnants anymore of that former life that you have to contend with. But principally, fundamentally, that time of life is past. It's finished. If a believer is dead to sin, sin no longer has dominion over you. You are no longer a slave to sin in the language of Paul in Romans 6. Now is the time to pursue holy pleasure in God. Isn't that true for you, believer? You're now living in a new time in which you are called to pursue the Lord in a life of holiness. That time is now. You look back on your former life and you say, I spent way too much time living that way. 
I wish I had listened much earlier to the call of God to repent and believe. Oh, is more than sufficient to spend on the lusts of the flesh. But thanks be to God, there's a change that has taken place. A change that has taken place that has led to a sorrow for sin and a joy to live for God. You see, the two fundamentals of a life of daily conversion, sorrow for sin and a joy of living for God. That former time is finished, but the present and the future time is a life lived for heaven's pleasures and joys. The former time was more than sufficient to perform the deeds of the flesh. Indicates to you, believer, that there's no more time to do those things. Especially as we think about the end of all time. We don't know when that is. So every moment that the Lord gives us on this side of eternity ought to be lived for Him. The time we have now should crowd out and starve the source of oxygen for sin to grow and to thrive. Children, how do you put out a fire? One way is to do it with water. But another way is to starve it of oxygen. Fire thrives and grows on oxygen. That's true for sin too. Sin is like a fire. If we give it oxygen, it will grow, it will thrive, it will become hotter and worse. But if we don't give it any oxygen, if we don't give it any room to grow, that sin will die, it will starve. That's what a child of God is called to do. To starve the source of oxygen by cutting off any way back to the former way of life. But it won't be easy. And you know that by experience. There's a price to pay in rejecting those former pleasures. Here's one area where the Christian life is also marked by suffering and even persecution. You remember, Peter is writing to those who were suffering. They were suffering persecution. Peter writes in verse 4, wherein they think it strange that ye run not with them to the same excess of riot, speaking evil of you. You see, the reality is that sanctification comes with a price. The price of old friendships, of old associations, the insults that were once hurled at others or spoken behind their backs, maybe that you were part of are now aimed at you. But from the perspective of the cross, it's a small price to pay. In light of the new associations and new friendships and new brotherhood and new fraternity with other believers and the experience of Christian love within the body, through the love of God shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Ghost. These are small prices to pay. We need to remind each other of that. We need to remind each other that these are small prices to pay, even though they might be painful in the moment. 
indeed in light of the coming judgment. These are small prices to pay, even though the reality is painful. No one wants to destroy friendships. No one wants to experience broken relationships within a family because of a newfound faith and life in Christ. No human being likes to be the butt of jokes or the aim of ridicule and insults. But Scripture is clear that when a life of daily conversion is experienced, there will be a change, even on the level of association with the world. Believers will face evil speaking and slander. But the reality is clear. Believers are called to pursue sanctification in light of the coming judgment. While suffering is the present context, perhaps even persecution in which sanctification takes place, we always need to keep in mind that the end is coming and it matters how you walk. Don't compromise in the moment so you have an easier life. Keep in mind that the judgment is coming. God will judge. That's what Peter drives home in the next three verses. Even as believers face persecution, the coming judgment provides perspective, it provides comfort, it provides hope. In verse 5, Peter says, Who shall give account to him that is ready to judge the quick and the dead? Those who ridicule and mock and insult will give account to God. And he continues in verse 6, For this cause was the gospel preached also to them that are dead, that they might be judged according to men in the flesh, but live according to God in the Spirit. What does this all mean? Well, in verse 5, it simply means that the wicked are accountable to God. God is in control of the wicked. That's a comfort for us who are believers who face the persecution of the world. God is in control of them. He will take care of them. Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. He will see to it. In verse 6, Peter is likely addressing a charge from those who ridiculed Christians that believers died in the same way as unbelievers did. So what was the point of serving God? Maybe their argumentation ran like this. Look it. You're believing Friend died in the same way as my unbelieving friend did. The end is the same. So what's the point of, of living holy lives now? Well, the Christian will answer, the judgment is coming. The judgment is coming. It matters how you live. It matters how you die. And so Peter is likely, likely addressing that very charge. And Peter responds, and he says that those believers who died in the same way as, as unbelievers, even though it seems they died in the same way, they had the gospel preached to them. And though they are now dead in being judged by unbelievers according to the flesh, judged to have died in the same way as unbelievers, judged according to outward circumstances to what these, these unbelieving judges were saying about how they died, in similar ways, yet God knows those who are His. In the final judgment, God will raise up the living and the dead, and all those who are His will be brought to light. He will vindicate them in the final judgment, those who are alive and those who are dead. He will gather them all into one, the sheep on the right and the goats on the left. And so that's a tremendous encouragement, isn't it? 
not only in a life of suffering, but also in a life of sanctification. Both of these, suffering and sanctification, are carried out in light of God's coming unerring judgment. See, God will make no mistakes. The world mocks and ridicules, but God will vindicate His own. But it matters how you live in the meantime. Putting off the former pleasure. Living according to the will of God. Pursuing sanctification. But the fact that God is the judge helps us to face what is coming in terms of persecution from the world. It helps us face what is already here as Christians become more and more marginalized. As our culture and society tries to to put down, to, to drown out the voices of Christians. As we face the ridicule of an unbelieving world, God is the judge. But in the midst of that ridicule, in the midst of that persecution, He calls us to a life of faithfulness. To a life of faithfulness. Not running along with the world, but running contrary to the world. What did Spurgeon say? He said, dead fish go with the stream. But a living fish will go up the stream. In Grand Rapids, we have Fish Ladder Park. Along the Grand River, you can watch the salmon and the the fall salmon run. The fish are alive. They are swimming up the stream. They They can go up the ladder. They can go upstream against the current. It's amazing. That's a picture of a Christian, of a believer who's swimming against the stream in a life of holiness, putting off the former pleasure and putting on the new man, living according to the purpose for which God created us to enjoy Him and glorify Him forever. And that is the formative purpose that Peter sets before us under the theme of holiness needed in light of the end. That purpose is seen in the latter verses. It's really a threefold purpose. The first part of this purpose is to live in light of the approaching end. The life of sanctification includes putting off the former life with its sin, but it also includes putting on the new man in righteousness and holiness. As Lord's Day 33 is so clear in teaching us. In verse 7, Peter takes the reality of the approaching end and he uses it as a strong encouragement to pursue this holiness. He says, but the end of all things is at hand. The end of all things is at hand. So here is persecution on the one hand. Here is a life of suffering on the one hand. Here is a life of putting off the former pleasures on the one hand. But the end of all things is at hand. Looming over us is the end of all things, the coming of the judge of all things. And so as believers look towards the end, we need to be careful how we walk. Careful. The Apostle Peter calls us to sobriety. 
It says, be ye therefore sober. Sobriety does not mean joylessness. It does not mean sadness. It doesn't mean a gloomy face or heart. No. Christian sobriety is a joy of heart. It is a fear of God that tempers and controls how we live in the present time. It speaks of self-control. That's what sobriety is. If you think of a man who is an alcoholic, he's not sober. He can't exercise self-control. But that man, same man, if, if he breaks his addiction to alcohol, becomes sober. He's able to exercise self-control. Peter picks up that idea in this word sobriety. Be ye therefore sober and watch unto prayer as the end approaches. Be disciplined, be self-controlled in prayer. In essence, he's calling believers to be spiritually alert. This reminds us, children, doesn't it, of the five wise and the five foolish virgins Some were alert and ready when the bridegroom arrived. Five were not. And so the question arises, is your life, believer, post-communion, marked by this sobriety and watchfulness? Are you waiting for the bridegroom? We dined with him this morning, as it were, in anticipation of what was coming. Is your life marked by this sobriety, by this watchfulness, by this spiritual alertness? Because if we're not spiritually awake, if we're not spiritually alert, we will certainly be easy pickings for the devil. Are we self-controlled and disciplined in prayer? Certainly we can take this to heart. Perhaps one of the most difficult aspects of the Christian life is to be disciplined in prayer. But it's one of the chief weapons of our warfare to put to death our sin, to put to naught the wiles of the devil. The judge is coming. Be therefore sober and watch into prayer. An encouragement to be disciplined in the Christian life. It's not only an encouragement, but a compelling reason to walk in holiness, knowing that we too will be judged for the deeds done in the body. The coming judgment should not strike a slavish fear in the hearts of believers. It should strike a fear in the hearts of unbelievers this evening if you are not reconciled to the Lord Jesus Christ. It means that you will meet him only as your judge and not as your advocate. But for believers, we need not fear. Our union with Christ ensures that we will stand before God's judgment seat in the righteousness of Christ. It does mean that nothing will be held against our account because we are in Christ, righteous, perfectly obedient. And when God sees us, He will see Christ in us. 
We have received a righteousness that will pass the scrutiny of God's judgment because it is perfect. But the judgment should compel us to live holy with anticipation of the eternal reward that will come as a result of good works. There is that reality of the reward that Jesus speaks about in Matthew 25, verse 21 and 23. Well done, good and faithful servant. Thou hast been faithful over a few things. I will make thee ruler over many things. Enter thou into the joy of thy Lord. The Apostle Paul reinforces this truth. In 2 Corinthians 4 and 5. Wherefore we labor that whether present or absent, we may be accepted of him, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that everyone may receive the things done in his body according to that he hath done, whether it be good or bad. It will be a universal judgment. For a believer, that judgment will mean vindication. For an unbeliever, that judgment will mean eternal condemnation something that we need to reckon with this afternoon and think about and act upon. It compels us, you see. It compels us to live in holiness for those who are believers. To be more and more conformed to the image of Christ. To desire that holiness, that that is rightfully Christ's, to desire more and more an expression of that righteousness that He imputes to us, that obedience that He gives to us as if it were our very own. That's what the coming judgment should compel us to. Not just the desire, but the reality of it in our lives. Lord, make me more holy. Make me more like your Son. So when that day comes, when I'll be translated into glory, that translation and the gap between my holiness and the perfection of Christ will be made that much smaller than it is now. But oh, the day is coming. The day is coming when sin will be put away. The Apostle John speaks of that, doesn't he, in 1 John 3. Now we are the sons of God. And doth not yet appear in our present experience what we shall be. But we know that when he shall appear, we shall be like him. We shall be like him. For we shall see him as he is. And everyone that has that hope in Him purifies Himself, even as He is pure. Our standard of holiness is not just what we experience now. Our standards of holiness is patterned after who Christ is. And so we look forward even to the day of judgment. But right now, we're called to live in light of the end. That's the great purpose to which God has called us. 
The second part of this threefold purpose is to live in love towards one another. We could say it's the expression of sanctification on a horizontal level towards others. How is sanctification often expressed? In a marriage between two believers, we say that marriage is still between two sinful people. But marriage often accelerates our sanctification, doesn't it? Why is that? Because two sinners rub shoulders together. And as two sinners rub shoulders together, we see the sin that still lives within us. We see the selfishness that still is there. And we encourage one another. We say, my husband, my wife, that sin ought not to be there. The Lord has pointed it out to us. Let's seek grace to put it to death. But Peter writes that also within the the body of the church, there is sanctification that happens. The end of all things spurs believers on to love one another. Peter writes in verse 8, And above all things have fervent charity among yourselves, for charity shall cover the multitude of sins. It is fervent love that is to characterize the lives of the saints towards one another, whether it's within marriage, whether it's within the body of the church. Fervent love. Forgiving love. Charity shall cover the multitude of sins. Forgiving love that is to characterize the interaction of the saints with one another. This goes against popular culture that says you have to hoard and live selfishly. That says you have to preserve yourself. Did you realize how many people live this way? Even well-meaning Christians live with this spirit of self-preservation, this spirit of individualism, that the only person that matters is me, not you. How often don't we live that way within the body? How do we live in light of the coming judgment in terms of self-preservation? How many well-meaning Christians have stockpiled for the things that we think are coming? Well, there's a balance there, isn't there? Between preparing for hard times and realizing that when Christ comes again, no amount of self-preservation or stockpiling will help us. Peter gives us a more excellent way to live in light of the coming judgment. It's not fear that leads to stockpiling. But it's love that leads to selfless living for each other. Intense, committed love. The word charity here is translated from the word agape. Committed, covenantal love towards other Christians. Reflecting that love of God that we heard about this morning. You see, a believer is like a prism. When the light of the love of God hits us, it ought to be refracted in all its different colors to others around us. Forgiving love towards other Christians. This morning we tasted something, not only of fellowship with Christ, but fellowship with other believers. 
What we had this morning was a microcosm, a small taste, a foretaste of what is coming in heaven. A small taste of that world of love in heaven. And if what we tasted here this morning is a foretaste, is a picture of the reality that's coming, then that love that is in heaven ought to be characterizes our fellowship with one another here below. What we had here this morning, we could say, is a dress rehearsal for what's coming. Our life as the body here on earth is a a dress rehearsal for what is coming. If we're living in contention with one another as believers, are we really living in light of the end? into that introduction of eternal fellowship with one another, with Christ. Peter challenges us even further on this point in verse 9. He says, use hospitality one to another without grudging. He's saying here, love each other as you would love the stranger. Love each other as you would love the stranger. The word hospitality here is the word for love of stranger. Why does Peter exhort believers to show hospitality without grumbling? Because a life of service can be challenging. It can be tiring. It can be thankless. It can be difficult and discouraging when your love is met with indifference and thanklessness and even rejection. But a believer is called to do it without grumbling. The end is coming. Continue serving with intense, forgiving, and stranger-like love. Here too, let the pattern of the cross shape your love towards one another. Sacrificial, other-centered love. After all, this love for other believers is what John describes as the birthmark of those who are putting off and putting on. He says in 1 John 3, 14, we know that we have passed from death unto life because we love the brethren. He that loveth not his brother abideth in death. We often get the question as pastors, how do I know I'm saved? And in some form, our response is always this. By your fruits, you will know. Here is a fruit. Here is a fruit of being saved. A fruit of the Spirit, a fruit of the life of sanctification, loving one another. Did you know it's the first fruit of a life of holiness, Galatians 5, 22 and 23. The fruit of the Spirit is love. And something that from this fruit of the Spirit, all the other Christian graces flow. But here we have it, to love one another. Why is that important? 
goes back to what we are talking about, about the ridicule and the persecution of the world. If we're not loving each other, what does that mean? It means that we're living as individuals, and those who are living as individuals can be easily picked off by the devil. But when we love each other in real, practical, and tangible ways, encouraging one another with spiritual fellowship, we're standing arm in arm against the world and against the devil. Remember how the pioneers going out west stood against the marauding natives. They circled the wagons. In a sense, that's what Christians do when they love each other. They circle the wagons against the influence of sin. So sanctification has a a corporate aspect to it as well, doesn't it? We put off and we put on together. In fact, if you read through the New Testament, much of the New Testament is talking about life with one another. Love one another. Be at peace with one another. Forgive one another. Sanctification rarely happens in isolation. And so we're called to live in love for one another. We're called to live in light of the end, in love for one another, in light, thirdly, of the glory of God. Each of the Christian graces that a believer receives is to be exercised in service to God's people, in dependence on God's power, and to magnify God's glory. Peter tells us what a life of holiness looks like in verses 10 and 11. As every man hath received the gift, even so minister the same one to another, as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. If any man speak, let him speak as the oracles of God. If any man minister, let him do it as the, of the ability which God giveth, that God in all things might be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom be praise and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Such a life of holiness is not simply evidenced individually. But it's evidenced in the life of the body. The spiritual graces that a believer receives from God are to be stewarded for the good of others. You see, the Christian life is by definition a life that is other-oriented. If it is a cross-shaped life, that's what it calls us to. Because that's how Christ lived his own life. He was other-oriented even to the end. So the graces we have received are not meant just for us individually, but for the life and for the good of others. They're to be exercised in dependence on the measure of the gifts and abilities received, on the power of God. This proves that sanctification is done in dependence on the Holy Spirit. John Murray, in his little book, Redemption Accomplished and Applied, writes that in a life of sanctification, it is that God works and then we work. 
The fact that God works in us enables us to work out what God has worked in. Conversion or regeneration is monergistic. It is God alone who does that without our cooperation. But a life of sanctification, a life of holiness, God works and we work. We cooperate with God in a life of sanctification, in a life of holiness. We work as well. We don't just sit at communion and then we go home and sit on our hands and pretend that God somehow works holiness in through osmosis and we just read the Bible and it somehow happens. No, we have to put forth our effort in reliance on the Holy Spirit. But that Holy Spirit, you see, dwells in us and gives us the power and the grace that we need to live a life of holiness. We're not left, in our, left to ourselves when it comes to the blueprint for holiness. We have the cross to remind us of what it looks like. We're not left to ourselves and we're called to put off our former pleasures. God gives His Spirit and His Word to convict us of our sin to bring us back to that one and only sacrifice of Jesus Christ to atone for sin. But as we put on, he also reminds us that we have the spirit of holiness present with us. The one who desires to see the image of the Son recreated in us. We have every resource that we need in the Holy Spirit, in the Word of God, to help us in a life of holiness. And finally, the great goal of this life of holiness is to done with a view to the glory of God. That's what Paul writes, doesn't he, in one of his letters to the Corinthians. They don't have the chapter and verse, but whatever ye do, do all to the glory of God. The glory of God will come again. Children, where was the glory of God in the Old Testament? It was in the cloud, wasn't it? The glory cloud. The cloud of, uh, the pillar of cloud by day, fire. The pillar of cloud by night, or the opposite, the pillar of fire at night, the pillar of cloud by day. Indicated that the glory of God was present with his people. Where is the glory of God in the New Testament? It's in Jesus Christ. The glory of the only begotten. The glory of God in John 1. The glory of God is coming again in Jesus Christ. Are we doing everything in our lives for Him? This morning we contemplated the love of God expressed through the sacrifice, the revelation of Jesus Christ and the fact that He's the propitiation for our sins. He gave it all. Are we willing to give back our all for Christ, for the glory of God? How will he find you? How will he find you?
That's a question tonight, not just for believers, but also for unbelievers. How will God find you? How will the glory of God find you? Will he find you walking carefully, watching your step as you approach the end? Or are you hurtling towards the end, not caring how you walk? You trip and fall into eternal hell and condemnation. Are you walking carefully, not in the former pleasures? You grieve over them. You live out that new life in the context of suffering, pursuing holiness for the glory of God. Beloved, remember these words. Watch how you walk as the end approaches. In the words of the scriptures, the end of all things is at hand. Be therefore sober, self-controlled, because holiness is needed in light of the end. Amen. Let's pray. Gracious God, we have been challenged from thy word tonight. A challenge that we cannot meet in our own strength, but a challenge that thou hast assured us can be sustained by the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit to put to death the presence of indwelling sin. And Lord, we confess that we often feel the battle that rages between these two principles, the indwelling spirit and indwelling sin. We cry out with Paul, O wretched man, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? And we are brought right back to Christ. I thank God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. And in those precious words, there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. May those who are thy own go home tonight encouraged, even as we are challenged, to live a life of holiness, a life of fruitfulness, in dependence on thy grace. And those who were challenged but don't believe, they'll be convicted of their unbelief. They'll draw them from their unbelief and bring them to the feet of Jesus. Their cry tonight would be, what must I do to be saved in light of the coming judgment? That even their fear of judgment, even their fear that leads to self-preservation would bring them to Jesus, thou art able We pray all this now, asking for thy grace to go before us in the week to come, that our focus would be on the end, on the coming glory of the Son of God, who will appear again in the clouds of heaven. 
in power and in might to judge the living and the dead. We ask in His name. Amen.